Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 652 of the podcast and it is Friday the 28th of October 2022 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Jennifer Hilt about the importance of genre tropes and appropriately, since it's Halloween as this goes out, our examples are from the horror genre. But neither of us like slasher, gore horror, which is only one subgenre, but we both enjoyed Stranger Things and Midnight Mass on Netflix. So we talk about those as examples, as well as comedy horror, supernatural horror and more. It will be a useful episode even if you don't write or read horror because the principles apply across genre and our examples will help you come up with your own tropes. So that's coming up in the interview section. So in publishing and book marketing news, well, it is exciting to have the Six Figure Authors podcast back for a special episode on why book sales are down and what you might be able to do about it. So if you haven't listened to the Six Figure Authors podcast, it's great, uh, but they stopped the show back in April, I think it was, to focus on books, writing and selling more books and other life things. So it's great to have them back. But going, I'm just going to pick up on a few things they talked about, but definitely listen to the show. It's an hour and a half long, so it definitely goes into a lot of detail. So that's six figure authors with a number six. But uh, just a few things they said, obviously, on a global scale, we've got economic, political instability in many countries. It's not just the UK. If you've been watching ours, it's not just us. Uh, We've got the threat of recession. And obviously, there is there are wars on and uh, wars and rumours of wars. as ever. Inflation and the cost of energy, uh, political instability, as I said, everyone's tightening their belts. There's also saturation. So there is more digital consumption in subscription models and more creators. So the pot is split between more people. Uh, Joe Lalo mentioned the declining of old guard platforms. And this is important. I'm going to come back to this. But uh, if you've seen the drop in Facebook advertising revenue, Google advertising revenue, and a whole load of those things, advertising revenue is changing for these companies. Uh, But also entertainment is changing. There's more immersive gaming, for example, and changing behavior like more people getting into the world instead of sitting in their houses reading. Also, Lindsay mentioned mainly reading in audio. And I do this too, because I you know, do other things and listen to audio while I do chores or go walking. And uh, I would also add that one of the changes is how TikTok is driving book sales, because unlike the sort of influencer model and the advertiser model, um, TikTok has this algorithm based thing that sort of you can come out of nowhere and take off. And it's almost driving this bestseller model where we had the, the spike sales are happening to very, very few authors. But when they do happen, they're, they're huge. I mean, if you see what's happening with Colleen Hoover, it's uh, it's crazy. And most people don't read a book a week or a book a day. Most people read a couple of books a year and if they even read at all. And so if, if everyone's reading the latest Colleen Hoover or the backlist of Colleen Hoover, that's fewer people in the long tail. So there's all these different things happening. Of course, it's not just indie authors. This is very important. Sales are down for a lot of traditionally published authors as well. But of course, many authors do not want to talk about this in public. 
So it was good to hear, but not good because of what the tweet was. But author Louise Voss tweeted last week, uh, one of the few to put this out there. She says uh, on her tweet, and I've linked to it in the show notes, What's the word for the sadness felt when you spend a year writing a book, then a fortnight after publication, your editor emails to say how disappointed they are with its sales? Basically, it's all over just like that. And the responses to Louise's tweet are really interesting. Now, Louise is a great writer. She's put out a lot of books over the years. She started out in uh, in the indie space a decade ago and went traditional. And she's you know, written lots of books. And so it's great for her. Thank you, Louise, if you are listening. Or, um, you know, we, we are uh, friends. We've met at things over the years. And yeah, I think this is really devastating. But I know a lot of indie authors feel this too. Traditionally published authors feeling this too. It's like the book is out and it's not selling anything. Well, things are changing indeed. So in the Six Figure Author podcast, uh, they give some tips for what to do if your book sales are not great. For example, (laughs) and they give lots of tips. So I'm just going to give a few again. One, put your prices up. <laughs> Definitely. I think this is interesting. Although, of course, if you're in in KU, then uh, that's um, that model. But even if you're in an exclusive ebook model, you can still sell direct, for example, and put your print prices up. Now, l- about six months ago, I put all my print prices up on IngramSpark and on Amazon uh, for my print on demand, because I noticed that my profit margin was just shrinking and shrinking because the price of printing and the price of paper and ink and all this is going up. So, uh, and if you sell direct, so I sell as, um, if you go back and listen to the, the Shopify podcast, I'm using bookvault.app and the print, the printing prices are, yes, they have had to go up too, but they are nowhere near the other services. So I'm, I can now make more money selling print books direct than I can on these other platforms. So I think that's really good. And obviously, when you sell direct, you can make like 90% of, say, even if you're selling your ebooks at four ninety nine, which many of mine are, I can make $4 on that. And that's significantly better than selling on the other platforms. So definitely, if you have been sort of teetering on the selling direct idea, that's definitely part of what is going on in terms of a shift. And it's all about control, right? It's all about being able to email out a um, a coupon to drive sales and to control your own prices. That's part of being independent. But the six-figure authors also talk about um, Kickstarter, other methods of sale, also asking readers what they might be interested in reading. A few of my tips, for example, cutting costs. I feel like uh, certainly I have over the years, you know, you sign up for something, it might only be $5 a month or something. And then, or it might be $20 a month, it might be an author service that was necessary a few years ago. And now things have changed, it's not necessary anymore. So I found a few of those subscriptions that I've cut. I've also cut um, some of my newspapers. During the pandemic, I ended up subscribing to a ton of traditional media. And uh, I'm, I've cut back on that too. So cutting a few things there. Also, look at other streams of income that are not book related. If this is your job, I mean, obviously, getting a day job is absolutely a way to go. And in fact, Joe Lalo talks about that. He talks about the fact that he will probably go back to a day job. And uh, I know lots of authors who have gone back to day jobs, and that's completely 
fine. I mean, to be fair, this podcast pays me a what could be considered a day job. So this is part of my other streams of income, as you know, and thank you to the patrons who make um, who enable me to do this and also the sponsors. So uh, for other examples of what I'm doing, I'm doing these live workshops on your author business plan. And any kind of service in general can bring in faster cash than books. What you've got to remember is for book sales, it can take, you know, developing a backlist or long term assets make money for the long term, but it's a lot smaller. And so if you have some spike spike income, say cash doing speaking or um, consulting or services, uh, that can help. The other thing is uh, doing, you know, connecting directly with your readers. And Lindsay, I I never thought I'd hear this, but Lindsay says uh, you have to become a brand now. She actually said that. Lindsay (laughs) Baroka. So, yeah, I mean, you have to become a brand. You have to be an author that people want to read. Uh, And that doesn't mean you have to have a ton of books. It just means that you need to develop a relationship with with your readers in some way. And also you can do um, special things for your readers only. So for example, my how to write a novel workbook is only available when I sell direct. Um, It's not on Amazon or Ingram or anything like that. So all of that, I agree. And they've got some amazing um, things that they talk about. And their backlist of the podcast has got lots of tips too. So definitely have a listen to six figure authors. However, (laughs) there's always a however Uh, the six-figure author team talk about this as a downturn and that things will return once the uncertain times are over but I think it's more than that this time and I've been talking about this for probably two years so you're not going to be surprised about me talking about it now I think the business model for indie authors is changing. And I've mentioned this book before, but I will mention it again, uh, especially as um, I think it was Pat, Pat McLean recommended it back to me this week. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, I recommended that to you in the first place. But yes, it's Undisruptable by um, Aidan McCullen. So Undisruptable, a mindset of permanent reinvention for individuals, organisations and life. So I recommended this last year. But he talks about how industries change and how you need to jump the S-curve. Before, if you think about the S-curve, you know, you, you, you kind of, it, it's at the bottom and then it goes up and then it starts to level off and then it starts to dip down again. So you have to jump the S-curve before it heads too far downhill. And uh, it's interesting with Meta, ex-Facebook Meta, the company, if you look at their share price now, it is really, I mean, it's it could be either the bottom of the S-curve or it's going to go a hell, hell of a lot lower. But they're looking to jump into, into the metaverse. The question of whether they make it or not is going to be interesting. I do think the partnership with Microsoft could be the thing that rescues them because Jonathan, as I talk about, works in Teams. He works remotely within Microsoft Teams and it wouldn't be much for him to sw- switch from his audio-only headset to a more audio-visual headset. So interesting. And he runs workshops and things at work with virtual whiteboards and stuff like that. So anyway, off the topic, but jumping the S-curve is something we always have to do. And Aidan talks about how most business models only last between eight eight to 15 max years. Um, and he said that that is probably getting shorter with the, the way technology is going. So just look at the music industry and publishing is usually three to five years behind the music industry. And streaming and subscription models about five years ago, drove digital and um, music sales off a cliff, basically. <laughs> um, uh, but in the book, Aidan McCullen says, um, 
Phase five, so towards the end of that S curve, phase five is where organizations compete on marketing spend rather than product innovation. They compete on price rather than demand. They facilitate price cuts, price cuts even, through job automation, optimization, and Me Too propositions where their products become generic. They are focusing on optimizing for a world that no longer exists. Individuals also suffer the same fate when they stop building new capability and depend solely on existing skills. So we all have to jump this S-curve at some point, and it might look like a step backwards. Um, so, for example, my Shopify store that I did earlier this summer, it was difficult. And if you go back and listen to that episode where I talk about the minimum viable store, yeah, it was, and I have a big backlist catalogue. So it was a pain to build and it felt like a step backwards because I had to turn off a load of things. I had to build loads of stuff new. It took more time than I expected and all of that. But now it's amazing and I love it and I can sell, like I just added some postcards. Um, I'm, I, I've got loads of plans for what I'm going to sell through my direct store. So yeah, and also the ro- the music industry, which I mentioned, what's brilliant about them being in the forefront is that they give us a roadmap into the future, which is handy. So successful musicians do not rely on streaming and subscription for their entire income or sales of digital uh, music. It is just one stream of income. Now, Orna Ross and I did an episode in April 2021 uh, on the Ally Ask Ally podcast about streaming and subscription. So go, and that's still absolutely relevant. So go listen to that if you want more on streaming and subscription. As usual, all the links in the show notes. You can always just read the transcript of that. But musicians sell all kinds of products direct and they connect with fans and a lot of them are selling direct. So The Telegraph had an article this week. The Telegraph is a UK paper. Uh, The headline was, forget the music, here's how pop stars really make money. And they used Taylor Swift's latest launch. Now, of course, we're not Taylor Swift and we're not Colleen Hoover, but we can do various things that they do. Now, if Taylor Swift does this, uh, you know, so much more we have to. So she does things like collectible album jackets, signed photos, pre-sale codes for live events, and of course, merchandise, lots of different things um, with her branding on. So yeah, I mean, I think special editions in multiple formats is one of the things that many of us are starting to do, either with Kickstarter or as I do with um, the selling direct on the on the Shopify store, which we should have the drinking game, which is creativepenbooks.com. <laughs> It's my direct store. (laughs) Now, of course, the rise of digital assets uh, like NFTs and royalty shares, uh, splitting with NFTs and and all of that is is already well underway in the music industry. And in fact, just last week, I bought one of Jay Thorne's music NFTs, Jay Thorne being a musician as well as an author and an entrepreneur. And he's going to come back on the show soon to talk about what's going on, because really he spans the music industry and or the author industry. So, yeah, Jay... Jay is um, Jay and I are going to have this discussion in a few weeks. I'm speaking at the NFT London event. Uh, in fact, this week as it goes out, so I will we'll be talking about what's going on. And given what I've reported in the last few weeks, the investment of Ingram and Bertelsmann, who own PRH, Penguin Random House, into Book.io, I think the traditional publishing industry is seeing change coming because we need digital assets. We need higher higher profit digital products. That's what you've got to think about. Um, And one of the reasons I went with Shopify is because they have NFTs in beta. Uh, So I expect to sell them on my store at some point. 
So yeah, as Aidan McCullen says, businesses and careers, like life, are about perpetual becoming, a permanent reinvention. And he talks about lenses through which we see the world. And, and we put on this lens. So maybe uh, maybe like, you know, I put on the indie author lens back in 2006, seven, uh, And then, you know, I've had these lenses on and I try and shift my lenses all the time and I'm trying to look at new things. But when was the last time you shifted your lenses? I mean, lenses, as he uses this metaphor, it's quite good. It's like they get steamed up or they get scratched or we don't go to the opticians often enough so we can't actually see the things we want to see. <laughs> we need to change things up. And the pace of change is obviously getting faster. I mean, in, even in the last couple of weeks, it, this AI art stuff is really accelerating. And what it's doing is bringing attention to other forms of generative AI. So text, coding, um, voice, all of this kind of stuff. So uh, companies are shifting. So Microsoft and Adobe adopting generative AI for art into existing and new tools. And just Yesterday, as I report this, Shutterstock, which is one of the biggest photo sites, stock photo sites, just announced they will sell AI images, which they will generate themselves. So I think Shutterstock will be recruiting people to be prompt engineers for like that's that's what you need. When you watch other people prompting, I mean, some of the, the best AI artists right now are writing like like 300 word prompts. And they're driving these engines into amazing things. So what's interesting is even a couple of weeks ago when Derek Murphy and I recorded that AI art episode, which is only about three episodes ago on the feed, we were saying, oh, this is going to put stock photo sites out of business because people will generate their own photos. And that's what I've been doing. I've been going on Dolly or Midjourney and generating images. And the image for this show and the last couple and going forward, they're AI generated. You know, that, that, that's what I've been doing. But if Shutterstock, many of us use Shutterstock or the designers, book cover designers, use Shutterstock for book cover designs. So this is going to explode their inventory. I mean, I think this is very smart. <laughs> now, of course, they have said they're going to set up a fund with which to compensate creators. But I know how um, this generative AI works. I, obviously, I've been playing with it for a long time now. And you essentially generate synthetic data. And what's going to happen? is they will probably just close down the submissions and then they're going to use synthetic data over time. So it's going to be very, very interesting. If you are a designer, you need to get to grips with this. And I think, I mean, I would probably move over to just buying stock photos from Shutterstock because they will generate tons. And I imagine what they would do, what I would do, is they would monitor that search bar so much and they will start creating to order. Um, and I, th I think that's probably what they'll do. So in my 2020 book, Artificial Intelligence, Blockchain and Virtual Worlds, I postulated that this kind of generative model could be used by a publisher, and that could be a publisher that has licensed all those images, or a publisher who has a lot of books in a specific niche. I'm sure you can think of examples of publishing imprints with famous names who essentially have right to order contracts and own the copyright 
um, of that and how you could generate and sell books in that kind of model. So I suggested in that book that we have some kind of blockchain for attribution and that we have a form of data licensing. And I have said for years now, we should have a data license for our work. And then companies can say to us, I would like to use your work to train this model. I will pay you for it. And as I have said again, and I'll keep saying it, I will license my work to train models. I would like to. I would like to be paid for licensing my voice, for licensing my um, words, uh, all of that. I think that's the way to do it. And blockchain for attribution ledger is is what I talked about with Roni, Le- Roni Levy earlier this year. So I don't know, I just feel like all of this is really coming together now. And you know, I love this stuff. And many of you have said you come to the show because I help you understand this. So I will keep talking about it. And I think there's a whole new set of opportunities for people who embrace this. Like I said, prompt engineering is is a job and it's going to become more of a job. And it may be that within organisations, you have a prompt engineer and their job is to generate your custom, like Jonathan's really excited about this. He's been demonstrating at work and maybe your job within a company is generating specific images for your company. I mean, that just sounds really cool. So I think prompt engineering is is going to be a job, at least for a while. And the most beautiful images are created by artists with knowledge of other influences and styles and those of us and those of those artists who can use the right words and understand the terms to get the right art. I mean, it's stunning what people are creating and the the most stunning work is being created between real in inverted commas artists and AI. It's there's just some beautiful stuff. And if you haven't really had a look at it yet, get get on hash midjourney or hash midjourney art, either on Twitter, Instagram, all of this stuff. So as ever, I think we have to surf this wave of change, not drown in it. Or try and hold it back or fight it. You you know what happens when you try and hold back a wave, right? <laughs> so um yeah, I mean I I think this also plays into the creator economy, which I've been talking about for a while now. And I have a course, if you're interested, thecreativepen.com forward slash learn. Or if you heard me speak at the self-publishing show live uh, or you listen to the recording. So in that presentation and in that course, I have this image of a wave that we as indie authors have been surfing really since 2009 when the Kindle really started to go mainstream and the first Kindle millionaires emerged in 2009. And the ebook sales business model emerged. And then of course, it got disrupted with subscription models. But where we are now is that um, in my course and in that talk, I pull back the frame as such. And behind what you thought was the biggest wave is another wave. And that wave is even bigger. And that wave is full of opportunity. And so for me, uh, while I do feel like one business model wave is cresting, I feel like there's so much more to come. And we just have to open our eyes to it. In the same way that I feel like I had my eyes open to the indie space before it was acceptable. This is where I feel we are now. I've been talking about this stuff for a number of years now, and it has not been acceptable. And as I've talked about, I've had quite a lot of hate over much of what I talk about. And I'm, but I just, I feel like this is what's coming. And if we embrace it, we will surf forward on that. But I truly believe that the existing wave is cresting. And that is why I've been reinventing aspects of my business and looking at what I want to do over the next decade. So my question today for you is, 
How long has it been since you reinvented aspects of your author business? Are you cresting that wave, basically? Are you feeling that? There is a feeling in the community right now that that perhaps that's what's happening. So how long since you re-examined things? And can you shift your lens to look at this bigger wave of opportunity? What could be an opportunity for you? And how might you be able to surf this uh, in the years ahead? So as ever, I remain positive and enthusiastic for the changes ahead. So I hope that helps. So in my personal update, while I am engaged with lots of stuff on AI, I am indeed still writing the first draft of Pilgrimage, Lessons Learned from Solo Walking, Three Ancient Ways. And I have settled on the cover. Finally, this has been a difficult one. Uh, It's one of my photos, which means a lot. And because it's a personal account and things. It's what I want. Uh, It's from the St Cuthbert's Way. And it also resonates with the themes of the book, which is practical, emotional and spiritual aspects of pilgrimage. I'm going to do a special hardback, which I will sell through my Shopify store. And it will be my first hardback with a flyleaf cover. I'm quite excited about that. And I'll also have a paperback print on demand on the other stores. And I will also have a pilgrimage journal to help people prepare for their own pilgrimages. And I'm planning to launch all of that in February 2023. I'm also preparing for my live online workshops on your author business plan. And there are three workshop sessions at different times of day because hilariously, when I did my survey, which what's 1300 people replied to quite, you know, decent amount of people replied. I had so many messages from people in not the US time zone, basically. So um, I have a a 7am session on Saturday, the 12th of November. And that's time was meant to work for Australia, New Zealand, UK early birds and Asia. And hilariously, only three people have signed up for that time. Uh, so either the, th- the four of us will be having a very intimate planning session or uh, some more of you are going to sign up. There are a couple of places left on the other sessions, which are at 4pm uh, UK and 7pm UK, which are both more accessible to the US. But check them out at thecreativepen.com forward slash live, L-I-V-E, and the dates are all there. And yeah, so I'm excited about those. And obviously, I'm partly doing it so I can do my own business plan for next year, but do it uh, together. So it will be a workshop. I'll be presenting a bit and then you get to write and it's going to be two hours and it is £50 and it is limited seats. And I will not be selling the recording. So you cannot get to the recording unless you buy a ticket, obviously. So yeah. Yeah, this is part of my kind of thing, doing some more, I guess they're services, but they're more like group events. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments. Sheila M. Myers said, listen to the podcast on beginnings and it was inspiring. I went home last night and realised the opening to my work in progress. Thanks. Great, Sheila. Adrian Wagar or Wager said, long time listener, so excited to hear that you'll be including more content from or for newer authors. You said beautiful photos aren't necessary, but here's one from the Bahamas. <laughs> and it was a beautiful photo of the ocean. Thank you, Adrian. Finally, Christina Branham says, listen to you talking about the wired content triggered the solution to a problem in my book that I've been noodling for quite a while. You never know where ideas will come from. So exciting. Thanks so much, Christina. And thanks to everyone for all your tweets and emails and photos. I I really, I love to hear from you. And you can tweet me at the creative pen with a double N. Email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. Leave a comment on the show notes or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. 
So today's show is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, because however you choose to publish, you need to make your book the best it can be. And excitingly, you can be part of surfing the wave of change because Pro Writing Aid is powered by AI. So it's a great example of using a powerful AI tool to improve your writing process. So I use ProWritingAid multiple times in my editing process, once after the full draft is finished, before I print it for my hand edits, and then again before I send it to my editor. And if it's a short story or something, sometimes I only use it as my only editing partner as such. But it is one of my absolute must-use tools in my writing process. Uh, I also use it on the blog as well. So why use software to help you? Why don't you just learn all the grammar and writing rules and apply them yourself? Well, we all use tools to improve our process and we are also often blind to our own writing issues. It helps to have another pair of eyes, even if the eyes are software. ProWritingAid knows all the rules and helps you apply them and you can train it with your uh, own, you can set your own rules for your style sheet if you have one of those. Of course you can choose not to make the changes as you like as you can also do with a human editor. Uh, ProWritingAid helps with making your writing more active, finding repeated words, finding words you could improve with something stronger, sentence structure, grammar, punctuation issues, typos, spacing problems and more. It integrates with all the usual word processing tools and importantly for many of us it integrates with Scrivener which is how I use it. I open ProWritingAid on my desktop then I open the Scrivener project and work through each chapter. I learn every time and it has loads of specific reports to help improve your writing in multiple ways. So won't an editor do all this, a human editor? Well, yes, they can, but I'd rather pay my editor to fix the things software can't. And as brilliant as ProWritingAid is, it cannot read your whole manuscript and comment on bigger issues like character development, inconsistencies, plot holes and overall structure. So I use ProWritingAid as my essential editing tool before sending to my human editor. So you can check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition by using prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons. And thank you so much, because as I said, I mean, it's difficult times and I know why a lot of people have unsubscribed. Uh, but thank you to all the people who have resubscribed or upped their support or subscribing this week. Our new patrons, Cynthia, Lindsay Hughes, Melody Moser, Lutzi Rockwell, Dana Morningstar, or Dana, Dana Morningstar, lovely name, <laughs> Carolyn Stein, Juliet Freymouth, and Alex Alberto. Thank you, everyone. And thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show for months and years. You continue to make sure this podcast goes on. So you can support the show with just a couple of dollars or pounds or whatever your euros or whatever your currency is. And you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio where I answer questions on writing, publishing, marketing, but also on futurist stuff, business stuff, personal stuff sometimes. So yes, you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Jennifer Hilt is the USA Today best-selling author of over 24 books across four pen names, writing in urban fantasy, supernatural suspense, and paranormal romance. Her books for authors include The Trope Thesaurus, Trope Your Way to a Stronger Story, and appropriately for Halloween, The Horror Trope Thesaurus, Killing It with Tropes. <laughs> so welcome to the show, Jen. 
Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. Oh, no, this is such a great topic. But before we get into it, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing. Sure. I've always loved storytelling. Even as a kid, I was able to walk to my local library and spend tons of time there, which is a huge gift. And so I just read everything possible. And I thought that I would become a writer. And the way to do that would be to go to school. <laughs> so I went and got two degrees, in one in linguistics and one in language, and all the time thinking about, oh, I'm going to write a book someday when I know enough to do that. And when I got out of school, I realized that school didn't really teach me how to write. I needed to figure that out myself. And reading and thinking about how books are put together is really the way to do that. I didn't really feel like going to school to learn to write a book was the way to do it. So that's kind of what led me to just a lot of self-study and thinking, how is this story put together? And just being intensely curious. That led me to doing some plotting with others because I do have lots of story ideas and am helpful at, at helping them develop their ideas into like a full-blown book. And as I was doing that process, I started to really think more in detail about the specifics of how stories put together, particularly tropes. How did you get into sort of going the indie way? Like, do you have a day job in this kind of thing? Or how do you manage that side of things? I had two children who had health problems. So I, even though I did have a day job, I wasn't able to keep that up. So I ended up just doing lots of writing to kind of help my mental health <laughs> when I had some free time to escape all the stuff that was going on with the kids. And so that was kind of how I managed that. I wasn't able to keep working outside the home, doing teaching and writing things. Thank you for sharing that because I feel like so many people, I mean, I'm very happily child-free, but it, many people with families, I have had people on who've had lots of children or children with health problems as you have. And I think it's really a strong message that you've written, like how many books? I said over 24. I think I lost count. Yes, yes, yes. It was really interesting when my first son developed his health problem, I was always thinking, okay, I'm really going to push this when I have time and when the kids, whatever. And then when he got that illness, I, it was like the horror of that. But also I, I did feel some shame as a mom slash storyteller in that I realized I'm never going to get the time. I'm going to have to find it somewhere. Nobody is going to give me this time because now there's this big thing that we need to do to keep him alive. So I, I really can identify with people who are trying to juggle multiple things and you just have this need to let this part of yourself be expressed, even though there's a lot of forces on you that are trying to like push that down. Mm. <laughs> I just think it's important to do that for yourself, even if it's not a thing you published. I mean, I have also plenty of books that I haven't published, but I just had to write that story. And I feel like as storytellers, it's important to know it's fine to do that too. Oh, no, that's great. We will get into tropes, but you said, I'm never going to get the time. Like, no one's going to give it to you. So, how did you manage to find it? Did you sacrifice your sleep or like, how did you find that time with all those other things? Yes, usually that's what parents or caregivers find is you're giving up sleep somewhere. I am just kind of by my nature an early riser. So, I ended up getting up like an hour earlier, which is also a thing that you've heard. The other funny thing, which people always find odd was that because I would have to leave the house because it was really hard for me to work. Even if things were quiet, I just couldn't get the mental space, but we had a McDonald's nearby. So I would get up at five in the morning <laughs> and go sit and work in McDonald's for an hour before I would come home. And no, 
my non-writer friends never understood that, but I've since talked to a lot of others who were like, oh yeah, work in our cars, just have to go to some place where you can get a little mental space so you can enter that other world. But for me, it was getting up an, an hour earlier in the morning, but some people end up staying later or lunch hours or it is hard. You have to find the time wherever you can, but I think the trade-off is I would feel better if I got that hour in as opposed to just kind of suppressing my need to escape in storytelling. Mm, I love that. In my head, I've got this vision of you sitting in in McDonald's. I think actually these chain restaurants, you know, on Starbucks is kind of the same. People don't bother you if you sit there longer. Like as long as you get a drink or something, then you can kind of sit there and and people don't interrupt. Whereas if you're in a smaller place, (laughs) you can feel kind of guilty about that. But yeah, you don't feel guilty about sitting in McDonald's. Exactly. And the other thing that I found, and this could just be me, was first of all, at at like five o'clock in the morning, McDonald's, it's mostly groups of retired men and sitting in these like tables of six, six to eight. It was always really interesting to see the same ones. And I would sit far away from them because I didn't want to be distracted by their sounds. But the kind of nice thing about going and working at someplace like that is I didn't feel like I had pressure on me. I felt like I was escaping pressure where Um, I live in Seattle now. And if I go sit in a coffee shop in Seattle, even now, it's like, oh my gosh, I feel like every other person there is writing a book. And it's just very serious and intense. It doesn't matter which coffee shop it is. So I'm still partial to McDonald's and various chain chain (laughs) places to sit with a Coke and do my work and just kind of feel like, oh, I'm free. And I'm not, I don't know, I'm not in somebody else's headspace. Yeah, I I love that. Great productivity tips there. So let's get into the book. Start with what is a trope anyway? And why are they so important in our fiction? I'm so glad you asked because we're just hearing that word trope so much more now. I think with social media and all the visual storytelling out there, I'm amazed how much I hear the word trope where like even I think two years ago, it wasn't being talked about the way it is now. But for me, what I've discovered in a lot of my digging and, and research is I feel like a trope is just a building block. It's a commonly understood idea that when we say a trope, for example, like orphan, I don't need to go into a lot of definition with you about what it is. People get what tropes are. They understand it's this general idea. So I think they're super important because we can take that general idea and then expand with it in our story. And it's a way of getting the readers or audience hooked early into our world. And then we go in deeper into building it to a specific place. I like that. So it's a kind of shortcut to the reader's subconscious like you said orphan we could say writer in a coffee shop (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) that's exactly that's a trope these days certainly on this podcast that would be a trope but so you said they're building block what are the different types of building blocks that we can think of sure I found when I started this journey of looking at tropes I found there's lots and lots of lists and they're almost always alphabetical and so I started to think Uh, well, that's kind of overwhelming for me. And I'm used to writing stories. So how can I think about these objects as more than just an alphabetical listing? So in my mind, I started to break them up into basically five categories. First is person, second place, and then object. And then I also thought of them as in secrets and changes. So I would take the the trope lists and divide them up into those categories. And it really helped with storytelling because I could say, oh, it helps me break these down further. And do I need a secret? 
Do I need a change? What, what's going to happen? What do I need to happen in the story? And then what are some options I have? Okay, so I think person, place and object, we're going to come back to these for Halloween, but just go into secrets and changes a bit more because they that doesn't bring up examples in my head. Sure, sure. Secret baby is my favorite trope of all time, I think, because I pretty much find in any genre I read. And it's what I think of as a twofer because you have the secret of you know, what happened with that thing. And then you have the physical baby, which you're dealing with. And it doesn't have to be just a baby. It can be a grown person, but especially in mystery, it's amazing how much secret babies in there. You find out at the end, oh, that's so-and-so's, that was so-and-so's secret baby. And I'm just like, oh, yes, it's always in there. (laughs) Can can Um, you give an example? Because this is one of those things, uh, apparently it's a romance trope. I just don't understand how anyone can have, like, what is a secret baby? (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, one well, since it's Halloween, one of the examples I can do of Secret Baby to talk about is Midnight Mass. And in that one, I don't, the doctor is actually the secret baby of the priest and her mother. Oh, you're right. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, so what, what you mean is it can be in the past. It doesn't correct. mean to be a baby right now. Exactly. Ah, uh, okay. I thought it was like someone's pregnant, but they're hiding it somehow. Right. Like they go and hide. You can do that too. I think the thing with tropes is that we don't need to be, because it's a building block, we don't have to be super specific about it. I mean, yes, it can be a physical baby. You can do it like that, or you can use it as something that happened in the past. And then it's, you're, you're dealing with the result in romance. A lot of times it's a shorter term thing. You, you, it's like a nine month, like they get together, they break up, she's pregnant, then they get together again. And it's all happily ever after usually when the baby arrives, but in other genres, you see it, the results is what you're dealing with down the road of, Oh, I didn't realize this person was related to that person. Ah, okay. And that then brings obviously inherent conflict and, oh, okay. I like it. So secrets, a good example there. What about changes? And changes are really important because at first I was like, we know our stories need change, but it's like how to do that is the rub. So my kind of favorite example of a trope with change is ugly duckling, because at first I was thinking of it in just kind of the traditional Cinderella way of like, she's got this rags to riches thing. But then it occurred to me more and more, our characters often are undergoing a change in that same way. And particularly, I loved with horror how often it's a monster that that we're having that change, either becoming one or the character is a monster and they're becoming more human. So it's really an evolutionary kind of trope is how I came to think about it. I quite like that. Let's do some examples of person, place and object as well, since we're we're putting this out on Halloween. So we're going to talk about those. So let's do a person. Like what's a popular horror trope with a person? Portrait, hero or heroine. Pretty much every horror story is going to have a protagonist who has horrible things that have happened in the past. and And if it's a horror story, most likely those things are going to be ongoing and happening in our current story. So I think that's pretty much, and that's a trope really that you find also though in romance and particularly also in mystery. I mean, I, I love mysteries and there's always the hard boiled detective who's an alcoholic and he's divorced and nobody's speaking to him. And he's had this horrible thing happen in the past. I, I really feel like that trope is, is used in all kinds of genres to really good effect because as people, we have really varied experiences and we all have past trauma to some degree or another. So why shouldn't our characters? 
Well, then I guess this brings up a question around, I mean, obviously none of this is cut and dried, but with person, so let's say vampires, in the past, vampires would be a horror trope. So you'd expect something with a vampire is going to be horror, but that's not true anymore, is it? No, I mean, it's interesting because I think now the like fantasy tropes, there's so many great like mashups and things that you can do with them. Like, for example, I'm thinking of what we do in the shadows, which took the vampire trope, which, you know, kind of at the time I I thought, what else could you do with vampires? I mean, we've seen so much done with them. How could you possibly do something new? And then the show comes out with the with the idea of basically a fake documentary about vampires living in a house on Staten Island. And it just kind of blew my mind in that it's so well done. And it's like so obvious, but obviously nobody had thought of it before these two guys. So there's still, even though there's tropes that have been around a long time, like vampires, there's still people who are finding new ways to use them and make them engaging stories for us. Coming back to Midnight Mass, now I read horror, but I don't read like slasher horror, but I like supernatural horror, but I hardly ever watch it because I feel like my imagination is a bit much and gives me nightmares and stuff. But I started watching Midnight Mass and it's quite a slow start but one of the let's talk about places it's this island that's cut off which I always think is a good (laughs) it's a good horror trope but it's such a slow burn and what they do with vampires in that tv series it is definitely horror but what they do is they almost flip it with this religious idea and there's this one scene where the vampire is wearing a priest's outfit and that just it was so shocking to me I kind of never experienced that particular way of spinning vampire even within horror and I'm sure a lot of people listening have seen a lot more like that but I I thought that was quite interesting around what to do with both a character and also a a place. Exactly that was really I thought the idea behind Midnight Mass was really fascinating like you're talking about I also found it extremely slow and personally in my mind was editing about three episodes so we could get things moving but the that's so it just just on that it's so interesting you said that because I found it just drew me in and I I loved it in fact I've watched it twice I loved it I'll probably watch it again because so but I think because I have a very strong religious education and I write a lot of religion that there was such a dense layer of religious imagery and kind of callbacks so to me the series was not just a straight horror where it sounds like you're the way you like these things to go is kind of a bit faster and with perhaps less heavy symbolism and slow religious development. I mean, that's a great example of what people like, I suppose. I think that's, it's really also a wonderful point about the diversity of horror, because I think when I started studying it more specifically, I was like, oh, I don't really like horror because I don't like slasher things. But then as I studied it more, I'm like, horror is is huge. And I think it it's such it's so much more diverse than probably any of the other genres because you don't have to have a happy ever after you don't have to have in the end you don't have to have the villain brought to justice you can have so many different things happen in such a mashup yes i really do tend to like things that that move along and have more a certain like tightness pacing um, a pacing to it yes pacing right and i generally like stories that are shorter i'm not great with there's very few books that I'll read that are really, really long that I think, oh yeah, all these words are are necessary. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) 
that's hilarious. I get what I get what you mean. And I do like that in some things. But I think it was interesting you said about the diversity of horror, because I find more and more that so much of horror is almost literary. It doesn't really suit series because so many people die. So with a standalone novel, people can really experiment a lot more than they might have done in a clearer genre series, for example. So I agree with you that the diversity is, it just seems much broader than some of the other genres. In fact, it lies under so many genres, doesn't it? It does. And the other thing I love about horror is I find that that it has a real acceptance of the absurd. And I personally love that myself. Like an example would be the what we do in the shadows where some people just like, oh, that's ridiculous. I couldn't possibly be interested in that. But I love that when you can take something and set it in a fantastical setting, but that, and so that kind of removes, removes and you're like, okay, I'm going on this journey, but actually what's happening is so intensely personal and real and you're able to relate to, but it gives you like a little bit of a distance to do that. And I love that that you can do that in horror. And I don't see it obviously as much in other genres, although sci-fi and fantasy can do cool things with the, that, the absurd too. But it's just kind of one of the things that I, I noticed when I was reading all these different and looking at all these different movies and things of like, oh yeah, it's okay to slip some of this in and the audience is going to go along with it. So let's come to place because I I love setting. Uh, setting's a sort of big thing for me as a writer, but also as a consumer. Obviously, I mentioned there the deserted island and the village where things keep burning down and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. <laughs> I think churches, really interesting. Churches feature a lot in horror. But also we wanted to talk about Stranger Things because I feel like Stranger Things is almost built on horror setting. What are some of the examples from there? Oh, I love Stranger Things. I was just going to say that, um, back up to say that when we were talking about the Midnight Mask, mask, forced proximity is really what they've set up pretty obviously with that island. And I think horror is a genre that uses it almost, ex- not exclusively, but it's pretty much in every story. I mean, you'll find forced proximity in romance and in mystery too. But it's just such a great way to prevent any kind of physical or mental escape for the characters. So Definitely Midnight Mass was working with that, with the island and getting rid of, you know, burning the boats in the Mm. end. That's fantastic. But yes, Stranger Things, oh, the setting is just fantastic with that too, because I felt like it's the details in Stranger Things, which I think transport me there. Like I was thinking, it's almost like you can smell Joyce's cigarette smoke and you can imagine what it's like to sit around the table and have like the casseroles that they're serving and everything's laden with cheese. And it's just that level of detail was what really puts us in the setting. And I think they did a fantastic job with that. And and in a mashup kind of way too, because they took this, they're showing us like the seventies slash eighties time. It was very familiar to me. I grew up in that time and they're introducing that to like a whole other genre or a whole other group of people who might have who haven't experienced that before but then those of us who did we get to relive it so I thought it was really clever to do it that way instead of setting it now and then the other thing with the setting was just they made it feel like forced proximity in this small town even though technically you could have left or you could go somewhere else but the way they set it up there was really no escape from being there 
absolutely and it's kind of interesting like the latest series has this a classic haunted house and there's the haunted house on in the the real side and then there's in the upside down and these kind of evil tree roots the almost alive evil tree i feel like they almost took a checklist of of horror tropes and were like how can we put this in in a way that people who love this still love it but without thinking oh it's been done before and that I, I guess that's kind of the thing with horror isn't it and also they had the abandoned nuclear bunker you mentioned their forced proximity no escape and any of these things in one way could be considered a cliche but for me the reason stranger things work so well is because it's so familiar so how do we balance familiar trope with uh, and not becoming a cliche <laughs> Yeah, it's a great question and and one I end up talking to authors about quite a bit. I think the difference, a cliche is something that hasn't been developed. So like the example that I think about with a cliche is like, you're going to write a story about a character who is an athlete, or the cliched version of that is the dumb jock. So the difference is I can take an athlete and I can make that into any kind of character in any kind of genre. But if I'm like supposed to write a story about a dumb jack, it just mentally makes it harder for me because it's negative. It's really fixed. I'm like, okay, so what am I working with here? So I feel like the problem with cliches is that they're just not developed ideas where we take a trope and we're going to twist it and develop and add our own spin on it. And that's exactly what they did with the Stranger Things. That's why it's so good is because there's things that are familiar about it, but yet they've added all their own details to it. And that's what keeps you coming back. Also, the idea of what's going to happen next. I don't feel like we give that enough credit as storytellers. That's really the most important thing. We can talk about craft, you know, until the the sun goes down, which I'm fine to do. But the really the most important thing is we want to hook our audience into knowing what's going to happen next. And if we can do that, then we're successful as storytellers. Well, that's interesting because do we want them to know what's going to happen next or are we using tropes to make them feel like they know what's going to happen next and then twist it so that it's more original? Well, what we want is we want them to want to know that. You know what I mean? Like you're going to be thinking, okay, I'm going to be done after this episode. A, A good show like Stranger Things even though you're like, I'm turning this off at the end of this episode is going to give you two minutes of like, oh, well, I didn't see that coming. Now I want to know what's going to happen next. And I don't necessarily, it's like, you know, what, how the series figured out the power of binging is that we don't have to wait, you know, next week to get the new, to new thing. But the trope, like I said, I I feel like they lay the groundwork for what we know with the general language of, of what we're talking about, but then it hooks us into like, the specifics of that world. Yeah, and it's interesting. I I feel like character is a really good way to do this, and horror can do this a lot because you expect body count, but often the way things are written or the way things are filmed, you don't expect certain characters to disappear. So I was just thinking there, again, it's difficult to talk about this without doing spoilers. So at the end of season one of Game of Thrones, there is a character dies who originally we thought was a significant character who might go all the way, but ends up dying. In the same way with Midnight Mass, I felt like, again, there's a significant character who you think this is the hero, this is the character who's going to make it through. (laughs) And then it's almost like the shift in expectation or keeping the interest is that a lot of the times these characters don't make it through. And I feel like horror has a lot more freedom 
to kill off characters, whereas other genres almost don't have that freedom. I, I think that's true. And you were talking about that where you can do standalones versus having to have a series. I think it's interesting because having the courage to like kill off a character like they did with Midnight Mass, it was so interesting how it then changed the focus from him to the young woman he had a relationship with and those other there was like all of a sudden this other characters who were more secondary kind of rising to the surface and mm-hmm. I thought oh, that's a really interesting way to do that and I too didn't think that would happen and it made me wonder okay so now it's going to happen with uh, like I was thinking of like the doctor I thought that she was ended up playing a much more prominent role in it than you would have guessed from the outset, or at least I would have guessed. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting. And Jonathan Mabry, who's one of my favorite authors, he writes horror as well as other things. He says, horror is not about the monster. It's about the people who kill the monster. And so to me, the almost the mystery is, how are they going to resolve this? How are they going to kill the monster when certain things happen that look like, therefore, it's all over? And well, let's talk about plot tropes, because I guess that fits into secrets and changes in a way. But plot tropes, for example, in horror, when a baddie is killed, they are very likely going to come back one more time. <laughs> that's like a horror trope of a, a plot. Or do you think that's more of a character trope? Um, I don't think it's not, we don't have to, whatever helps you like visualize the story better. I think the thing with the, with plot and tropes is we're trying to think of how to advance the story. And I, I used it kind of, I use tropes kind of that way, like in terms of thinking about, I guess I'm thinking about like kidnapped or revenge or jealousy or those kind of elements of plot, which it's like a one word thing, but we can break it down into all these like little micro scenes that help us get there in the end. And I just have to back up and say, I love that quote by Mayberry, because to me, that was the biggest realization reading all these horror and looking at all these horror movies was, yeah, it's all about relationships. Yes, there's blood and gore, but it's really the relationship that it's about. And the closer the relationship is to the protagonist, the more the agony, the greater our experience as an audience. And that was just really fascinating for me to realize that too about relationships because I just didn't get that going into it. Yeah, uh, it's so funny. And if people, uh, well, maybe people who don't like horror have stopped listening, <laughs> but I feel like it's a, a genre with so many different elements. I mean, like cosmic horror, for example, it, it wears a lot of elements of sci fi and huge sort of world changing horror. It's so different. And like we've both said, we don't read any slasher stuff. So it's, there is blood and death, but it's not in a written in a way or or visually in a way where that's the focus and it's actually funny with midnight mass I did have to look away a few times <laughs> but I keep wanting to go back to it it's kind of addictive to have these those different layers but I did I also wanted to return to object because we were giving examples of everything so give us some good horror objects MacGuffin is is really the, the MacGuffin is like the classic object of what a thing that you're looking for. And you can, again, find that in any genre. It doesn't have to just be in horror, but that's kind of like the main one, but also, or a main one, but it could also be objects don't have to just be an, they could be like a secret baby. Say, so say, you know, that there's somebody who had, had this relationship in the village or whatever, and you're looking for that. It can be anything that kind of helps move the story along in that way. 
another good, like I even think of ugly duckling is, can be an object trope because of if it's a monster and everybody's like looking for the monster. I guess for me, it's think, well, and this is the type of thing I write, which is sort of a cursed book. So I've got in A Thousand Fiendish Angels, there's a book of human skin, which releases this curse that kind of destroys the world. And that book is an object and it's cursed and people transform. And so that is a classic to me, a horror trope is a cursed grimoire or a cursed book or a cursed sword or, you know, cursed objects that wreak havoc in whatever world you're writing in, to me is a very horror trope. Exactly. There always seems to be a thing. Like in Midnight Mass, when they pull in, we don't even know who it is, or they pull in that giant trunk. Yes. And I thought, oh, that was great. And just the the way they did it with like the thump, thump, thump of how heavy it was. And I mean, there's nothing good in there. But but you're also like, you want to know what it is. And I just thought that was a great way to do it without it being like a, a smaller specific object and have it be literally you're opening it to find another thing. Mm, I love the cursed object thing. I mean, I live in Bath in, in the southwest of the UK and there were Roman baths here. So 2000 year old uh, bath complex. It's still there. You can come visit it. And they, when they dug it all up the first time, they found all these cursed tablets. So these little scrolls of metal where in Latin, there were all these kind of curses to on people who had wronged them or lovers or or whatever and it was so interesting and they were thrown into the sacred spring because the spring here was sacred to a pagan goddess and then the romans took it over and all this and this idea of cursed objects it's so human because clearly it's in every culture it's in different genres but it it's so interesting how some of the horror tropes particularly i feel like demonic possession again it's in every culture the idea of something taking over someone and some of it might be explained in modern times but there are things in horror that I feel are really ancient in terms of tropes that you can read in myth let alone in modern books absolutely and it's not a horror but it's like a a movie that I kept going back to thinking the first Indiana Jones movie where they're looking for the Ark of the Covenant is like kind of a perfect example of what we're trying to do in a variety of stories. And they're basically taking this ancient thing and still trying to capture the power of that. So it works in with the curses that you were mentioning. And I think it's just the idea of looking for monsters and who is the monster. But of course, the Indiana Jones film was the Temple of Doom, which which is so funny you brought that up now. And in my head, I remember it was one of the first movies my dad took me to. And I left the cinema when the priest reaches into the guy's chest and rips out his heart. I mean, that is totally a horror moment in an action adventure movie that I don't know how they let children watch. It was a different time for sure. I'm amazed at like some of this stuff when I'll go back and watch a movie like, really? This was PG, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It really is. It's interesting. And actually thinking about twisting horror tropes a bit, I mean, Teen Wolf was a movie with Michael J. Fox. Uh, It was Michael J. Fox, wasn't it? Back in the 80s. And this is a werewolf in a school, (laughs) but it was a funny, as as far as I remember, it was quite funny. So we've been sort of switching around these tropes for a long time and making some of them funny, like Shaun of the Dead. Have you seen Shaun of the Dead or is it just a kind of British thing? I love it. Oh, good. (laughs) And, And it's, again, like for me, the example of like the absurd 
Yes. Um, Comedy and, horror. Yeah. Yes. And there's that, that is just great. Again, where you're just like, oh, how could you possibly do another thing on it? And then they just, that slight twist or mashup of kind of this poor slacker guy and zombies was just yeah, terrific. it was just just epic. <laughs> and just so everyone listening is like, why are they only talking about movies and TV? <laughs> well, it's mainly because when we were thinking about this and more people have watched these shows than have read different books. But I think we should mention at least Stephen King <laughs> in the horror genre. And I always like to bring up The Stand, which is so important to me as a book. But it's funny because I I went to listen to the audiobook at the beginning of the pandemic. And if people haven't read The Stand, it is essentially a plague that is a, has flu symptoms, wipes out like 99% of the world. <laughs> and I just couldn't, I couldn't listen to it. I couldn't read it because of obviously the pandemic and with COVID. But it's interesting how some of these tropes have go up and down, isn't it? They wax and they wane depending on the situation. I think pandemic books were popular for a bit and then they've kind of gone out of fashion now. <laughs> I think we need more of an escape than that. <laughs> mm. But yes, I remember too when the, yeah, when the pandemic was first starting, there was actually reading an article, there was a huge spike in viewership of movies and things like that. And I remember thinking like, why? Personally, I I wanted something as, you know, opposite of what was going on. But then as the pandemic and just kind of kept going and going, that dropped way down. And then it was hard for people who are trying to get books published that they've been working on a long time that are about a pandemic at a time when everybody's like, I don't want to hear anymore about a pandemic. So it's interesting how, yeah, there is that kind of waxing and waning of of tropes and of, of things that people find interesting and what really we have appetites for. Mm, and that reminds me, I remember Anne Rice, who obviously famous for interview with a vampire and a lot of vampire books. And she said, don't say that vampire books are dead. She said something like she's made three lots of fortunes out of vampire books <laughs> because they keep coming round. Like even when people say, oh, no one's buying vampire books anymore, they actually are and they will come into fashion again. I think when Twilight hit, Anne Rice once again <laughs> made more money because people were like back into vampires. And so as these things ha- happen, so if you're someone who likes to write a certain thing in your books. Like I like cursed books <laughs> and they feature in quite a lot of my stories. Uh, that's fine. You're allowed to do that. And in fact, I wonder if religious horror is kind of coming back because of things like Midnight Mass, which is quite interesting to me. So yeah, I mean, things circle back, don't they? And these, especially these tropes, which echo so much, as we said, into mythology, into religious history, they keep coming back because they're such a a basic part of humanity, I guess. Absolutely. The other interesting thing I was thinking about vampires is, yeah, we had Twilight and we had, we have all the Anne Rice. And then again, it was like, oh, what could new, new be done with vampires? And then Charlene Harris hits the scene with Suki Stackhouse. And it's like, oh, you can have basically vampire detective novels in that way mm-hmm. or vampire thrillers. And that was a whole re- resurgence of vampires in a different way than we thought. Uh, this the idea of Vampire Bill, like the average nerdy guy who happens to be this also sexy vampire. I mean, she just did a great job of, again, taking a trope and twisting. And I, I still will reread her books and just be like, oh, so good. She's got so much in there. But it's just done in such a way that you feel like you're enveloped in that world as opposed to like, oh, here's a trope. Here's a trope. Here's a trope. Here's a trope. So I think she did a great job of using it 
organically to build the stories. And that's really what we want to do. And if anybody hasn't, you can watch the series, but her books are are also really good and you kind of get into more of the character's mindset. So I was just going to put a plug in for everybody to check those out seeing as Halloween. Right. So I did want to ask before we're out of time, how can we use tropes in our marketing to tap into a sort of underlying desire in our readers? So maybe in covers and descriptions or social media images, how can we utilize them? It's really interesting that calling out the trope in your blurb can be hugely helpful with being seen because of the whole keyword issue. So I would say don't bury, unless it's like a crucial part of your story that you have to read the whole book to find out at the end, it's, you know, character is a a certain thing to use, to really be very straightforward. And you're calling those out in your blurbs and your marketing because audiences love, know what they love. So if you've got a vampire book, don't hide that it's a vampire book in your marketing because you're going to find people who want that. And if people aren't into vampires, they're not going to pick up your book anyway. So I think we don't need to be like ashamed or hiding that we're using tropes because as long as they're well-developed, audiences are going to love it, but it just helps them to find us. So I think that's really important. Mm, So you mean include include the words, but also the images and the tone almost in, for example, horror books are not usually white <laughs> in in colour. They don't normally have a light pastel coloured look about them. And horror books normally have a darkness about them in some way. Exactly. It's also important that that you follow what's going on in your genre. So you want to, like you say, you want to stick with, you think you would think like, oh, I should be new and creative. So people will, will see this, but the reality is we like what we know, what's familiar. So you really want your book cover to work with the other covers in that genre, because it signals to the reader visually when they're scrolling through a million things online and there's so many things competing for your interest, like, oh yeah, I like this. And this is in the same category or grouped or looks similar to that. So we're kind of working with really a audience bias, I think, by using tropes that way. So I think people shouldn't be afraid to use them because you put the work in for the story, you might as well call it out visually and in your blurbs and any way you can with the keywords to let readers know that the things that they like are in there. Yeah. And I find, obviously we can't do this as authors, but Netflix and to some extent, Amazon Prime is starting to do it, Amazon TV, but Netflix, especially because I can see it when I log in versus when my husband logs in, but it can be the same series and they're using different images for when I'm logged in to when he's logged in which I find in one way it's slightly disturbing. And in another way, it's genius because, for example, Jonathan likes military stuff and his feed will be full of military stuff. And I'm not so into that, but we could be watching something that's like The Old Guard, which is a great movie on Netflix. And I get uh, Charlize Theron, the female, main female character. It's really her movie, but he gets a sort of more of a group of guys looking action adventure um not saying that's a horror that's more of a a thriller type movie but it's so interesting to me how different images call to different people even though it can be the same book so <laughs> part of me wants that for the future of books like in some way we can tweak things but maybe that's like facebook ads you can do different things for different groups but we can't really do that with book covers can we <laughs> 
it's possible to recover. I mean, there's a lot of authors that will recover their books on a semi-regular basis just to kind of get more eyes on things. I especially have seen that with romance. But also you kind of noticed with cozies how things are, there's the, uh, I've seen cozy authors do that too. And I think that's fine. And it's a great use of technology that we're able to do that where you're, it's not like kind of the old days where you got a cover and you're married to that cover for like 10 or 20 years. So it is interesting slash disturbing (laughs) the information (laughs) that they have about us and they're able to tweak things in order to get our interest. So if we're seeing that as authors, we know how important it is to get eyes on our material. Mm, for sure. Right. Well, the horror trope thesaurus is fantastic. The original trope thesaurus is great. I wondered, uh, what are you writing next? Where are you going with that series? Thanks. Well, right now I'm finishing edits on the romance trope thesaurus, which is a really deep dive into the genre of romance and then 10 subgenres. I'm wrapping that up. And then the thing that I'm really excited to be working on new is basically a book that talks about tropes and conventions and themes and kind of like how we put these all together to create scenes. Cause we talked a little bit about like, for example, enemies to lovers or in horror, I think of it as like the opposite way, you know, lovers to enemies where it turns out that that person is actually like the monster and working against you. But to get from, to get through that change trope, you need to have a whole bunch of scenes in there to do that. So I'm playing around with how we use tropes to get those scenes and what are necessary to develop them more in a plot. Brilliant. So where can people find you and all your books and everything you do online? JenniferHilt.com. So just check me out and all my books are available wide. Pretty easy to find and feel free to drop me an email and talk about tropes. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Jen. That was great. Thanks for having me and happy Halloween. So I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Jennifer and that it gave you some ideas for tropes in your genre. So as ever, let me know what you think about the show or my questions in the introduction. Uh, Leave a comment on the show notes or the YouTube channel or tweet me at The Creative Pen or email me joanna at thecreativepen.com. As ever, all the links are in the introduction of the show notes. You can always go to thecreativepen.com forward slash blog and find uh, the latest episode or use the search bar. Uh, Next week, I'm talking to children's author Ada Ari about her African language and storybook as well as how she publishes and markets in the USA, mostly direct to customers. Now, Ada is a new author. Again, many of you asked to hear from new authors uh, who were doing things. And she has built a fledgling business without knowing much of what indie authors take for granted. And this is what I found so interesting. So I loved hearing about the way she's doing things, but also was able to offer some help around uh, ways to grow things. And she has brilliant plans to expand into more books and products for children. So it's a really uh, interesting discussion. Uh, In the meantime, happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.